This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephan Coxlow. This week, The Death and Life of Aida Hernandez is a non-fictional account of an undocumented teen mother and her harrowing struggles with the U.S. immigration system. Author Aaron Bobro Strain says that unlike for those of us lucky enough to have been born in the United States, there is no margin for error for people like Aida. She is essentially condemned to death for making the kind of dumb mistakes that many teenagers growing up all over the country make. Also, with the primary election coming up, we take a look at the Fuse Washington Progressive Voter Guide with Fuse Communications Director Colin Jurgens. Then, in response to recent ICE activity in the state, a group of volunteers has been distributing leaflets detailing how to stay safe to people who may be targeted. We talk with one of those volunteers, Janice Cox, who happens to be my mom. That's all ahead, so stay with us. As we bear witness to the magnitude of the crisis at our southern border, we can often struggle to put a single human face to the suffering. My guest, Aaron Barbro Strain, has written a book that does just that. The Death and Life of Aida Hernandez is a non-fictional account of a young woman who was born in Mexico but raised in America and about her often horrific struggles with the U.S. immigration system. Aaron is a professor of politics at Whitman College, where he teaches courses dealing with immigration and the U.S.-Mexico border. He's also a founding member of the Walla Walla Immigrant Rights Coalition, and we are so glad that he could join us. Aaron Bob Rostrain, thank you so much for being here. Uh, th- Stefan, thank you for having me. So look, there's so many themes that your book threads together, uh, our immigration system, particularly the way that it treats women, the economy, and, and I want to talk about how AIDA fits into all this, but I'd like to start by talking about the border town of Douglas, Arizona, where most of the story is set, because it's it's almost like a character in the book. And you say that you initially had planned to write about Douglas and the conditions there. Why? Yeah, you know, I, um, I went to the border, the U.S.-Mexico border, for the first time in the early 1990s and ended up working there um, for a, a nonprofit organization that uh, worked on cross-border and immigration politics, um, and I really, I really just fell in love with the the twin border towns of Douglas and Agua Prieta. So it's Douglas, Arizona, and then Agua Prieta, Sonora, and Mexico across. And there's they're small towns. Um, Douglas is about uh, seventeen thousand people or so. Uh, Agua Prieta is much bigger, uh, but still kind of a sleepy a town. And um, I think one thing that gets missed in a lot of reporting about the border today. Um, is just the incredible beauty of life in the borderlands, the, mm. the creativity um, and the resilience that comes from living your life across borders. And I wanted to convey that, um, but I was also really aware as someone who worked on the border in the 90s, um, when a lot of the policies we see today were being crafted um, and also has continued to go back to the border uh, frequently since then, um, that this beautiful space had been set up for sacrifice um, to this 25-year bipartisan obsession with uh, deterring migration through ever more cruel uh, policies. And so then let's bring Aida into this story, because obviously she's the central character. How did, and I should mention that that's not her real name. How did you come to meet her? Yeah, so I went to the I went to Douglas in, in Agua Prieta in 2014, and I was starting to do interviews and get to know folks. And a woman named Rosie Mendoza, who's a, a real powerhouse a formerly undocumented social worker who works with victims of domestic and sexual violence on the border. Um, she kind of became one of my main guides to the town. And um, 
she reached out to Aida, who had been a, a client and became a friend of hers as well, and uh, encouraged her to reach out to me and, and to tell her story. And she, she kind of said to me, you know, if, if this woman calls you, you really need to talk to her. And there's a, a kind of a long and funny saga of how we finally did eventually get into contact. But we met in a, in a park on a winter day in Douglas in 2014, and, and she told me her story. Um, how much of her story did she tell you on that first night? Yeah. What did you learn about her? Well, um, I don't want to give too many of the, the, there's a lot of twists and turns in the story, but I don't want to give away too much. Um, and she told quite a bit of her story, but as you can imagine, the first time you meet someone and you're telling your life story, it's a, it's a little bit more of a stylized, streamlined version. Um, it would take four years of, of intense reporting and looking at all kinds of documents and interviewing friends and family and attorneys and law enforcement and all kinds of folks um, to kind of cross-check and verify and expand her story. But, you know, it was a, I got a pretty good sense of it that first time. And I had not intended at all to write a, a book about one person or to have one person at the center of the book, um, and much less uh, to have violence against women on the border, uh, a central piece of, of what I was working on. But after I I spoke with Ida that first day. Uh, I just knew that she had such a powerful message uh, for the rest of us who are more privileged in the way we look at questions of the border uh, and immigration. And it was a it was a painful, uh, intense story full of so much stuff suffering that left me shaking. Um, it still does. Um, but I think the thing that you know really brought me to tears that day in 2014 was the the way she conveyed this kind of wit and brio and pride in in kind of having survived um, everything that she survived, uh, you know, by her sheer wit and the seat of her pants. There is this real sense that you know what she had accomplished simply surviving the world that the rest of us through the policies we've enacted have made on the border. That simple act of survival was full of as much dignity and worth as, you know, any rich person's achievement. Um, and I think it really hit me, uh, the, the writer Hector Tubar um, talks about how that, that brio and that um, pride uh, often gets missed in reporting um, on poor people, on immigration, on the border, um, you know, where there's this, there's kind of a lot of times immigrants are, are reduced to kind of uh, cardboard cutout backdrops for the kind of quote unquote tragic immigration tale right. um, where they're passive victims. Uh, and everything that Ida conveyed was the opposite of that. And I wanted to kind of bring that to the page. Uh, and of course, you know, not uh, every, the idea of having someone write a book about you wouldn't really click with everyone. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know how I would react if someone asked me that question. Um, but for Ida, it was it was clear from the start, and she told me many times, you know, that that telling her story publicly was going to be part of her healing process. Um, she said to me a couple times, you know, I've already basically gone through death. You know, at least this is a way to turn everything I experienced into something that can reach people um, that could make a difference. Yeah, and I agree uh, with you 100%. She is not a character that you in any way feel sorry for. In fact, if anything, you're inspired by her. I, I will just ask you, did you have concerns about being a white man telling the story of a woman who is a Mexican immigrant? And, and how did you reconcile that? Yeah, I mean, that's probably the thing that was most difficult, the thing that weighed on me most through the whole 
the whole process. And, you know, there's a long a tradition of, you know, what you might call immigration porn or poverty porn, uh, kind of writing about um, folks like Ida, done by white folks, mostly for the consumption of, uh, you know, well-meaning white folks. Um, that goes horribly wrong. And I was aware of those traps and, and really wanted to work to avoid that. Uh, right at the beginning of the process of writing this book, actually, I, I printed out and taped over my computer this quote from the anthropologist Philippe Bourgois, who is paraphrasing another anthropologist, Laura Nader. Uh, and the quote is something like, um, don't uh, write about or don't study the poor uh, and powerless because everything you say can and will be used against them. Mm. Um, and I really, I really took that seriously methodologically and conceptually. On the methodological front, it meant making this as collaborative a process as possible. Um, so really uh, having Ida take a, a major role in shaping the narrative, um, going back and forth to her with drafts, um, and not just Ida, but also her family and her friends and other people involved in the story and, and having them shape the story. Um, and also uh, really uh, a responsibility on my part to get the book in draft form out to, to many, many people who had different perspectives than I do um, on these kinds of issues. So, for example, sending the book out uh, in draft form to uh, to many uh, scholars and activists uh, of color, uh, particularly women, um, who have a real immediate understanding of the risks involved in a project like this, and were able to critique the book and give me encouragement and directions, um, and really trying to listen to that. And so I think that was kind of how I went about um, trying to navigate that terrain. But also conceptually, um, it was really important, I realized, that this isn't just a book about Ida, right? It's not just about folks reading her story and feeling sorry for her or even feeling inspired by her. Um, it's a, also a book told in collaboration with Ida and her expert knowledge about our policies and our laws. And it's about the way in which the rest of us have allowed these policies and laws to be created in our name, supposedly to keep us safe. So in many ways, as much as it's a story about Ida, I hope that it's also a mirror um, held up to those of us who look at the border and immigration from a more privileged perspective. Well, it's an extraordinarily well-written book, and I can't recommend it uh, highly enough for listeners. I will ask you, the book is nonfiction, but it reads very much like a novel. Why did you choose to tell Aida's story in narrative form? Thank you. You know, I'll take that as a compliment. And I've been, I've been intrigued because a number of different media around the country have, have actually made the mistake of calling it a novel, and I've had to uh, the publicist for the book has had to send out corrections. Mm. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I really felt, um, you know, I've been teaching uh, immigration policy at Whitman for a long time. Um, I've been an immigration activist in my own community. And it really started to dawn on me that when it comes to these kinds of debates, the thing that, that really moves people are stories and the, the power of stories to move people um, and to change hearts and minds was really at the forefront. Uh, you know, after kind of lecturing about immigration for many years, um, I realized that um, that ultimately it was going to be stories um, that had the power. So, you know, that's that was the origin of, of wanting to write in this way. But also knowing that, you know, empathy and the, the 
the kind of feeling of connection you get when you're reading a story about someone uh, is not enough um, because empathy, um, as powerful as it is, and as much as a, it's an important first step, um, empathy can often um, kind of let us off the hook uh, in the sense that, you know, it can we can reduce our political action to just feeling sorry for someone um, mm. and really missing the ways in which we are complicit in the very policies and laws that have made that person's life um, almost unlivable. So uh, as I tell the story, uh, you know, in, as you say, in a kind of nonfiction novel form, um, it's also really important for me to bring in the history, the political economy of the U.S.-Mexico border and the way it's been steadily militarized since the early 1990s, and to really make it clear to folks that what's happening on the border um, is our responsibility and our uh, you know, it's it's up to us to change it. You're touching on a lot of themes about immigration. And as I said, this pulls a lot of threads together. And I want to unpack those in just a moment. But just staying on Aida for a moment, she is a, a flawed person. And I, I think that's part of what makes her story so compelling. She makes a number of missteps. She gets pregnant at 16. She ends up in detention for shoplifting. And you've touched on this a little bit already, but I, you say that her story should basically make us more skeptical about this black and white binary of the model immigrant versus the rule breaker. Unpack that a little bit more. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I don't think I don't think it's possible to to overstate how much our immigration debate right now turns on this impossible binary between, you know, the supposedly flawless, innocent, high achieving, quote unquote, good immigrant who deserves sympathy and maybe rights and the, the quote unquote bad immigrant or the, the criminal alien um, who deserves whatever punishment. And I know that. Um, you know, right now, uh, at the Trump administration, it feels like he's declaring war on all immigrants all the time. And the, this binary uh, isn't this important, but it still is crucial. And I still see it, you know, folks here out here in eastern Washington, conservative eastern Washington, who, you know, really do feel uh, incredibly moved by what's happening to children on the border, you know, innocent children on the border, but are perfectly happy to throw other immigrants who don't fit that innocent flawless, high-achieving stereotype under the bus. You know, even those kids' very parents um, get thrown under the bus. So uh, that that binary is this, is a central piece of our immigration debate, um, and it's an impossible binary. And I think Ida's story really brings that out because you see the way that she is essentially condemned to death for making the kind of dumb mistakes that, you know, many teenagers growing up all over the, the country make, um, or, uh, you know, just kind of growing up, the kinds of like small things that you do when you're growing up have huge consequences in this moment. As Rosie Mendoza, who I mentioned earlier, says, um, humans make mistakes, immigrants can't. Um, so there's very little room for that nuances uh, beyond that binary. So I really wanted the book to be a strong shout about the dignity and worth of people who's li who live more messy, complicated, more human kinds of lives and get us thinking about how we make an immigration system that recognizes that fundamental humanity of people, even folks who don't fit our perfect, flawless, high-achieving, good immigrant stereotype. 
I want to talk a little bit about how we got here. Uh, this is something that you teach at Whitman College. And you point out uh, in the book that uh, for much of our shared history, people used to be able to travel pretty freely across the U.S.-Mexico border. When and why did that start to change? You, you track it back to 1965 and legislation signed by LBJ. That's right. Yeah. And um, I mean, if you if you come into Douglas, Arizona from the United States, you're coming in from a mountain pass and you can look out over the valley and you see Douglas and you see Agua Prieta and they basically look like one town, um, except now you can see this black smudge of a wall that separates the two places. Um, and for most of its history, these two places were one community. Some people call them Dogla Prieta, uh, you know, family life, commerce, uh, politics, everything crisscrossed the border. Really, that was that kind of fluidity of the border, the fact that the U.S. and Mexico have been intertwined since before there was a border, was almost begrudgingly accepted in immigration law for a long time. So uh, even in the 1920s, as the U.S. began to enact explicitly racist, explicitly eugenicist uh, immigration quota systems, folks from Mexico and the Western Hemisphere were excluded from that. So in the 1960s, 1964, 65, we've got um, the civil rights movement. We've got the Cold War. You've got this sense that um, it's getting increasingly difficult to kind of justify America as the bastion of liberty when we have this explicitly racist, explicitly eugenicist immigration system. Um, so there's a move to create uh, liberal immigration reforms. And as you say, uh, eventually LBJ signs these into effect. And what they are is a new system, uh, essentially the base of the system we still have today, um, where every country is going to get the same numerical quota, which is great. It's a, you know, it's a liberal reform moment, but it also sets up a problem, which you can probably foresee, which is that up to this point, you've had essentially unrestricted numeric Im uh, immigration back and forth between the United States and Mexico. The two countries have become so deeply intertwined. And now all of a sudden, Mexico has the same quota as Madagascar or Bhutan. And it's about 20,000 people a year. And so you go from a system before in the early 1960s where you had about four to 500,000 Mexicans migrating to the United States, mostly on legal status every year, a circular migration, people going back and forth, coming to the United States, doing work here for a season, returning to Mexico. After 1965, visas are restricted to 20,000 people. And so did the two countries give up their long history of being deeply intertwined, having that exchange back and forth? No, of course not. So they kept coming, but the difference was at, when they uh, continued to come, they all of a sudden were considered to be illegal. Exactly. And if you look at magazine covers of the day and uh, news coverage of the day, people are, are shocked, so shocked uh, to discover that all of a sudden there's all this undocumented immigration. But essentially, people who had been immigrating legally were just recategorized as undocumented. We essentially invented undocumented immigration in that moment. And since then, we've just continued to shut down legal routes towards immigration. So when did it start to become this militarized border policy that we see now? Yeah, that dates really clearly to uh, fall of 1993 under the Clinton administration. Uh, like so many of the, the awful uh, immigration policies we're seeing taken up by Trump today, uh, this one also had its origins in the Clinton administration, um, albeit in a, a more limited, less extreme 
form. So, and I actually happened to be right on the spot working on the border when this happened. It was it was in El Paso, um, fall of 1993, and the local. Uh, Border Patrol chief, sector chief, um, operating with some Clinton-era INS uh, strategy documents, uh, did something that had everyone scratching their heads. It was a, a total shift in the way the border was enforced. And basically what he did was he took his agents off of mobile patrols out in the hinterlands um, and simply lined them up one after another along the, the most crossed, most central part of the El Paso-Juarez border. Uh, one after another. And his idea, or the idea of the strategy, which eventually came to be called prevention through deterrence, was that if you completely shut down the relatively easy urban crossing points, you're going to force people out into the more dangerous, difficult terrain outside of town. And that's going to make border crossing more difficult, which will make it more deadly, which will make it more costly. Uh, and as a result, fewer people are going to do it. And we didn't know it at the time in 1993, but that would become the new paradigm of border enforcement that has been with us ever since. It's been a 25-year bipartisan uh, expansion of that original idea, which is essentially we, we make the border more dangerous and more cruel and more lucrative for smugglers, i.e. more expensive to migrants. And supposedly that's going to deter migration. It didn't, in fact, we know now, deter migration at all. But it was an incredibly popular strategy that spread rapidly to the rest of the border. And, and I think it's really important to remember that when we see things like family separation, kids being held in the conditions they're being held in on the border, um, the way the Border Patrol is treating people. When you hear all of those horrific things coming out in the news to these days, you have to realize that these are not aberrations, and they're not just artifacts of Trump, and they're not bad apples. This is actually the strategy we have been operating under for 25 years, taken to its to a cruelest, to its crueler extent, right? We've designed the border to be more dangerous, to be more cruel. And so in that sense, when kids are being held in detention, uh, the cruel, like, like they are today, the cruelty is actually the point. Mm. We are in, we're trying to create that cruelty in order to deter people. Well, and on that subject, when you wrote the epilogue of your book, you said that even after what was then 18 months of the Trump administration's policies on immigration, you saw reason for hope. Things have gotten a lot worse since then, and I'm wondering if you're still hopeful. Whew. I mean, this week, <laughs> the past few weeks, it's it's been difficult, um, but I do, I do feel hope uh, in the sense that um, I take a lot of hope, and I think one thing the book does convey is a lot of hope um, in the recognition and appreciation of the incredible struggles of immigrants around this country, um, the kind of courageous struggles of immigrants, uh, particularly young immigrants. Um, have you know, seeing that over the past few years um, has been incredible. Um, I I take strength from that. Last weekend, I was. Uh, doing a, uh, an immigration training with the Walla Walla Immigrant Rights Coalition, facilitating this training, and to see the increasing organization, the increasing passion about defending immigrant communities that's emerging out of um, immigrant communities themselves in this moment um, was really inspiring. Um, yeah, so that's where I'm taking hope right now. 
Yeah. And in fact, a, a recent NPR Marist poll showed that 64% of Americans support a pathway to citizenship for undocumented migrants. So uh, that for me is cause for hope. Um, you know, I will mm-hmm. ask you, many of us feel powerless against what we see happening at the border. You have an essay about this on your website. What do you recommend that people do? Yeah. Um, I, I totally get that. I feel, I, especially recently, I felt completely overwhelmed. And this is something I, I think about and, and study and have been involved in for, for many years. So that feeling of overwhelmingness is actually part of the strategy that the Trump administration is rolling out yeah. um, to try to to give us this trained helplessness. Um, I think the first thing is you can get involved locally. Um, the Washington Immigrant Solidarity Network is an extraordinary organization um, that is doing work all over the state. Um, the La Resistencia, the Northwest Detention Center uh, organization, is doing great work in Tacoma and Seattle. There's the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project um, and many other groups uh, across the state that one can just get involved in. You know, here in Walla Walla in January of 2016, we had a, a town hall meeting with the sheriff and police chief and mayor and some other folks, uh, and they were not able to give satisfactory answers to the question of how are you going to defend immigrant communities against what's coming down the pike. Um, and so, folks, uh, we kind of got together um, and created the Walla Walla Immigrant Rights Coalition. It's been a difficult work, a work in progress, um, but you can uh, come together as a community, uh, and we're really out there defending the idea that immigrants may our community stronger and safer and and better. So the the opportunities for local involvement are incredible. Um, There's also some great organizations to support on the border. Um, I really recommend people check out um, the organization Al Al Otro Lado, which is one of the main organizations in Tijuana, San Diego, that's working with uh, the new wave of Central American asylum seekers. Also, um, the um, Casa Alitas in Tucson, uh, a Catholic organization, uh, as well as Annunciation House in El Paso, uh, are doing incredible work um, with this new wave of Central American asylum seekers. I will have a link to all of those organizations, as well as the essay that you wrote at indivisiblepodcast.org. But one last question. Have you been in touch with Aida, and, and how is she doing now? Yeah, we talk um, We talk you know, a couple times a week usually. Um, and, um, I'm really happy to, to report that, um, you know, the book, I I will, without giving too much away, I'll say the book, she's in a, in a pretty rough spot, uh, when the book ends. Um, but, uh, she's doing much better now. Um, and, uh, found some, some great support in the place where she's living, um, was recently able to finish her GED, which was an incredible accomplishment given everything she's been through, um, and is right now training to be, um, a peer mental health counselor, um, to kind of take all the stuff she went through and then use that to be able to help other folks. Well, it's an extraordinary story, and uh, I, again, highly recommend that people check it out. Aaron Bobro Strain is a professor of politics at Whitman College. His new book, The Death and Life of Aida Hernandez, is out now on Ferris, Strauss, and Giroux. Aaron, thank you so much, man. Uh, thank you, Stefan. Great. It was great talking to you. 
Fuse Washington is the state's largest progressive organization, helping with grassroots mobilization and strategy around progressive causes. They also put out an endorsement guide called the Progressive Voters Guide. And here to discuss this year's guide is our friend Colin Jurgens. He is the communications director for Fuse. Hey, Colin. Hey, Stefan. Thank you so much for having me today. Thanks for being here, man. So last week, I asked uh, Washington Democratic Party Chair Tina Podolodowski about the importance of off-year elections. And so I will ask you the same. Why do off-year elections matter? Well, I'll start out by saying that so many important issues are handled at the state and local level. You know, it's easy to focus on Congress because that's what's on TV and that's what people tend to talk about on social media. Um, But particularly with the gridlock in Congress, um, the state and local level is really where laws are getting made right now. And, you know, if you look at issues ranging from education to transportation, uh, housing and homelessness, criminal justice reform uh, and so many more, those are all handled at the state and local level. So if you're worried about traffic in your kid's school, you know, take a look at who's on uh, your local city council, on the school board and your county council. Yeah. These are the people who make decisions uh, ultimately that affect our lives far more than what happens at the, the national and state level, for sure. So in what ways has Fuse worked to drive voter turnout and enthusiasm around elections? Well, this time of year, we are helping register voters, as we do most years, uh, to make sure that people have the ability to participate. And then we use our grassroots organizing and social media to uh, really drive home uh, the importance of local elections and the issues I was just talking about. Uh, You know, one thing I didn't mention before is that your vote can have such a big impact on these local elections because the margins are often very small. And the turnout is sadly lower. Uh, Sadly, yes. So your vote is magnified. You know, I was just looking at back at the last Seattle City Council elections uh, and our current uh, Seattle City Council member from West Seattle, Lisa Herbold, she's running for re-election. She won by 39 votes last time. And uh, Council member John Stokes in Bellevue, uh, former mayor, he was elected by, I believe, 54 votes. So these are very small margins where you and and a few friends and family members could potentially tip the balance uh, in one of these important races. Yeah. Yeah. Your vote really counts this year for sure. So let's talk about how Fuse's endorsement process works. So uh, first, there are thousands of candidates running for office across the state. So you obviously cannot review them all. How do you choose who gets considered? What are the criteria for that? That's a good question and one that we get a lot. Uh, So we start out uh, by trying to put ourselves in the shoes of progressive voters across the state. Uh, Because that's really the audience for our progressive voters guide. So we look at uh, the number of voters in a given area, the number of progressive voters. uh, If we have a local volunteer council in an area, if it's a political swing area. And we also try to prioritize uh, people of color and LGBTQ candidates uh, running for office across the state. And I know that you also work with partner organizations. And so if they are placing an especially high priority on a specific candidate, that matters too, right? It definitely does. And the endorsements of our partner organizations really form the backbone of our guide. We have 29 partner organizations that we work with, and they're all listed on our website, uh, progressivevotersguide.com. And what we try to do is compile the endorsements of these 29 groups and use that to try to reflect to voters 
who the progressive consensus choice is in a, in a given race. Um, the idea is that for most progressive voters, if you were to look at a race and say, oh, candidate A has been endorsed by Planned Parenthood and a collection of labor unions and Washington conservation voters, they're probably going to be the candidate that I like. So that's one area of consideration. So then how do you ultimately arrive at an endorsement, especially in a crowded field like, say, uh, the Seattle City Council primary? What are some of the other considerations? Yeah, the Seattle City Council races this year are really tricky. I believe there are 55 candidates running uh, in the seven districts. So in the small number of races around the state where we do have a very crowded field or uh, a variety of progressive candidates, we try to conduct in-person interviews. Uh, in the city of Seattle, I believe we conducted 18 in-person interviews. Okay. And we try to drill down into detail uh, on their priorities and their policy positions on issues like homelessness, on tax reform, on closing the achievement gap in schools, on climate change. And we really try to differentiate between the candidates. Uh, particularly in Seattle, you have multiple progressives running in every single district, I believe. So we try to figure out what are the differences in priorities, what is the difference in their background, and use that information to try to paint a picture uh, for progressive voters in Seattle. Right. And I, I know that for all the candidates that you look at, you are also looking at things like track record, um, how effective they might be if elected and things like that. And so then with all of that in consideration, who is ultimately responsible for making the endorsements? Our board of directors is the final say in these very complex races. Um, and those folks are listed on our on our website at FuseWashington.org if you want to go look them up. Uh, but only a very small number of the most complex or tricky races uh, actually is decided by our board of directors. We have a group of staff uh, that includes our executive director, Aaron Ostrom, our campaign director, Jamie Lynn Wheeler, uh, myself, and then our two other uh, communication staff who really do the work on the guide, uh, Stephanie Spence and Isabel Gibson Penrose. The five of us will uh, get together uh, for hours at a time and just go through uh, all the information we have about the candidates, from their policy positions to their endorsements to uh, the results from the interviews, uh, what our partners have said about them, um, every piece of information we can, and we try to uh, uh, hash that out. So you have made endorsements in 210 races across the state. What are some of the ones that you're looking at that you consider most critical? I think there are a couple that are getting a little bit less attention than the Seattle City Council that uh, are very important this year. The mayor's race in Spokane is up this year, and the conservative incumbent is term limited out, so it's an open seat. And uh, the progressive city council president uh, is running for mayor. Talking uh, about Ben Stuckert. Yeah, he was on the show. Exactly. He's a really great candidate. Really great candidate. And Spokane is a progressive city, but they haven't been able to pass as many uh, policies as we would like, certainly, because of this conservative mayor who's been in place for the last eight years. So that could really uh, change the, the dynamics in Spokane a lot. We're also paying close attention to the Bellevue City Council. Uh, right now, the Bellevue City Council has a four to three left-leaning majority. 
but four seats are up this year. And, um, you know, Bellevue is, I believe, the fourth largest city in the state. It just doesn't tend to get as much attention. And so conservatives are really putting a target on Bellevue trying to flip control of that city council. Uh, so those are two very big ones that we're following. And, um, you know, Seattle is obviously very important as well. And with so many people running and like I mentioned before, the margin of victory likely to be very small, uh, we will probably have an outsized influence in some of those races. Well, the Fuse Voter Guide uh, is very, very helpful. And I know that it costs money to create and that you rely on donations. Where can people go to help out and donate? I really appreciate you uh, mentioning that. Yes, we start working on our voter guide around the 1st of April. And so while we released our voter guide three weeks ago, it's actually been a four-month project to get to this point. Uh, Our team of five spends uh, more than 1,000 hours every year working on our voter guide. Wow. And if people want to support that, uh, we really appreciate it. You can go to ProgressiveVotersGuide.com, and there's a Donate button in the corner. Uh, Chip in $5, $10, whatever you can. Um, we do rely on uh, small donations from hundreds of people a year to fuel this uh, voter's guide. You know, Colin, before I let you go, uh, people may not know this about you. You were a field organizer for the presidential campaign of then-Senator Barack Obama. So you have seen a winning campaign up close from its early days. I wonder if you have any thoughts on the Democratic field at this point. Yeah, it's been very exciting to watch it. Uh, so I just want to be clear that Fuse has not endorsed in this race for president. <laughs> I'll ask you to step away from your role with Fuse temporarily. Yes. Just as an individual, I would say that Elizabeth Warren is running the strongest campaign, just in terms of the policies she's putting out and also how she's organizing her campaign. Uh, I've been really impressed to read about how she is trying to make uh, all of her TV ads and digital ads in-house uh, so that she can cut out the uh, consulting fees that often run into the tens of millions of dollars that yeah. most campaigns pay. I've been very impressed with that. Uh, I've also been very impressed with Kamala Harris and the energy that she has created. And I have to give a shout out to our home state governor, Jay Inslee, for relentlessly making climate change an issue in this campaign that no one else is prioritizing like he is. Yeah, absolutely agreed. And uh, we are still holding out potentially for a climate debate. So we'll see where that goes. Uh, Colin Jurgens is the communications director for Fuse Washington, and we have a link to their progressive voter guide at indivisiblepodcast.org. Colin, thanks as always, man. Thank you so much, Stephen. I appreciate it. In response to the increase of ICE activity in the state targeting our migrant population, a group of volunteers on the east side in cities like Bellevue, Renton, and Issaquah have been handing out flyers in Spanish to day laborers and others about what they should do if they are being targeted by ICE. And one of those volunteers is my mom, Janice Cox, and she is here to talk about it. Hi, Mom. Hi, sweetie. How are you? I'm good. (laughs) So, you know, I know that this is a very emotional issue for all of us, and I think especially so for you. Just talk a little bit about why you were moved to take action in this way. 
Yes, and to say I was moved is to put it mildly. We all know that I'm a crier and I'm an empathetic person, but I was outraged by Trump and his cruelty at targeting these people who have done nothing wrong. These are people who have come here and they've made a life and they've made a family and they are working jobs that we really need. We need these people here. They are community members. They're good neighbors. They're good people. And so we're trying to help keep them safe from ICE because we know that they are out. We know that he has put them out on the prowl again, and we're worried for them, and we're trying to do whatever we can to get the information out there that they would know what to do if they're confronted by them. And I think, you know, a lot of us feel very helpless when we see what's happening yeah. at the national level, but this is something that we can do at the local level that really makes a difference. So uh, where have you been going primarily to uh, to hand out these flyers? Well, so far there are a handful of us, and we have gone to... Um, Home Depot, and we will go there in the mornings early, uh, starting around 7 o'clock, and we'll stay there for two or three, four hours, whatever it feels like we need. And this is where the men will hang out, hoping to get jobs for the day, and they'll um, be standing around in groups. And I park my car there so they know that I'm in one spot, and then I will just go up to a group with a smile on my face <laughs> because well, I don't disarming. speak I, yeah, <laughs> I don't speak Spanish I know a few words and I can I can make do if I need to but I bring a flyer along that explains what we want to tell them so that they're um, so they're aware of what they can do if they're confronted by ICE. And so when you give the people the flyer and it has uh, information about what to do um, have you found that people have not been aware of the information that's on the flyer. Yes, I have found that most people have not been aware of it. And they have also been really grateful to have this. Um, What I do is give them the flyer and I go through the points, the main points on there with them. I've also been telling them if they have cell phones, take a picture of the flyer, send it out to all their friends, anyone they know who can pass this information That's along, smart. because yeah. this is something that we need to get out there. They can call this 24-hour hotline. Um, there will be someone there to to help them if they think they have seen ICE. And this is the hotline that is manned by Weiss, and that is, is the Washington Immigrant Solidarity Network. Can you give that number? Yes, I can give the number. It's 844 724 3737. There's somebody there all the time. They are expecting calls. They are there to help. If you if they think they have seen ICE, they will send someone out to verify. If they think someone has been detained by them, they will make sure that that's true. They will follow it up. They will try to find out what's happened with the families and if they've separated them and where they've taken them. And this network is here to support the families and try to help them. And so we're just trying to make sure that they know their rights. And even though they're not citizens, they have rights. They have human rights here. So we tell them the first thing you know is to not open your door. If you don't recognize this person, do not open your door. Tell your children, do not open your door. If you open the door, they will come in. They will seize you. There and is no doubt. they're not allowed to come in without That's a judicial right. warrant is my That's understanding. That's exactly right. If they, don't, if they don't have a judicial warrant, they 
have no right coming into your house. You also should not speak to them. You're better off not saying anything to them at all. Just be silent. You don't have to talk to them. They don't have the right to make you talk to them. Anything that you say, they will use against you. You also have the right to film with your camera, with your cell phone. You You can film what's going on if you need to. If you see them out in public, you have the right to use your cell phone and film film them so you can pass this information along. The last thing is that you do not sign anything. Don't ever let them get you to sign anything. So we're stressing all of this to make sure that they know these rights. And these people are very, very grateful because they don't know this. They don't. Well, if people listening right now would like to do what you're doing, what should they know about this experience? You should know that it's extremely gratifying. I just figure if I have made any difference at all, if I can save one family, anybody, it's worth it. You will feel as though you're doing something rather than nothing. If you feel as angry or as empathetic as many of us do, this mm. is something you can do without any training, without any anything, really. You're just there trying to make contact with people and trying to help them. And I will tell you, these people are so very grateful. They're so very grateful for this information. I had a man tell me and hug me several times, but he got teary, and of course I am because I am who I am, (laughs) Um, um, saying, I cannot believe you people are out here, that you care about us, that you're out here doing this for us. And it's the most amazing feeling to know that you can help somebody who doesn't expect to be helped. And these are wonderful people. I have made... Um, I've made friends with many of them, and they are just the loveliest people. They're kind. They're wonderful. We need them here. We want them here. They're good neighbors. They're good people. Well, I completely uh, agree with that, and I imagine that everybody listening uh, agrees with that sentiment as well. You have said that you are offering to mentor people in the work that you're doing, right? Yes, I would love to do that. If anyone is interested, if you live on the east side, Please uh, feel free to contact me. You can message me. I would be very happy to come out and spend time with you. We could spend a couple of hours together in the morning, and, and I'll show you what we have learned to do and and uh, walk you through it. Well, I'd that's, love to. That's wonderful. And uh, you can find her on Facebook. Her full name on Facebook is Janice Pierce Cox. I will have that information at indivisiblepodcast.org. I will also mention that you can find a Spanish language version of the flyer at both the website and also on the Facebook group, the Washington State Indivisible Podcast Community. You can get a downloadable version there. Mom, thank you for coming in. Thank you for doing the work. You are so welcome. It's my pleasure, truly. And that is it for this week's show. If you missed anything, if you would like to catch up on past shows, if you would like links to the things that we talked about, you can find all of that and much more at indivisiblepodcast.org. You can subscribe to the show there too. I would love it. Also, if you want to get in touch, the email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Our associate producer is Charlotte Gittleman. Thank you again to my guest, Aaron Bobro strain Colin Jurgen, and Janice Cox. Special thanks to Abigail Scholar-Bangs. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.